Hey everybody, this is Jonah, the producer of the pod. Before we get started, I just wanted to share some exciting news with y'all. This week, Curtis successfully defended his dissertation, so now he's officially Dr. Curtis Harris. Uh, Curtis, from everyone here at Sports Reference, we just wanted to say congratulations. And with that, uh, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Negro Leagues, our major leagues podcast, a production of Sports Reference. I'm your host, Curtis Harris, and today we are joined by Dr. Leslie Heafy, who teaches Asian history, 20th century U.S. history, and sports history at Kent State University in Ohio. Professor Heafy has published and contributed to several books, including Satchel Paige and Company, Essays on the Kansas City Monarchs, Their Greatest Star, and the Negro Leagues, as well as the Encyclopedia of Women in Baseball. So appropriately, Dr. Heafy and I will be discussing the history of women in baseball. We begin that conversation uh, with a general overview of women in baseball as players, owners, and spectators. And then we'll discuss uh, what differences there were between white women in baseball and black women in baseball during the era of segregation. I think it's a very uh, fascinating and Unfortunately, under-discussed topic, but hope you all enjoy the conversation and learn quite a lot from Professor Heafy. I'm Leslie Heafy, and the what I do is always interesting. Um, I always say partly by, by day, I'm a history professor. I teach uh, history at Kent State University. And as a result of that, I teach a variety of topics. But one of the ones that I actually do get to teach is I teach a sports history class. I teach a baseball history class. I teach a Negro Leagues history class, which is very cool, um, since that is my area of research is the Negro Leagues and women's baseball. And so that's kind of what I do. Okay. And so you have lots of different interests, as you kind of just alluded to there. Uh, but, but how did you get interested in sports and baseball history in particular? Um, growing up, my dad was a huge baseball fan, so I watched all the time. Uh, grew up in New York, so he was a big Yankee fan. I grew up at a time when we used to, he loved to listen to it on the radio. And so we everywhere we went, he'd take the radio with him, and so got to listen all the time. Somehow, I ended up, a, well, I know why, I ended up a Mets fan, not a Yankees fan. And I, and I remember as a little kid saying, I didn't like George Steinbrenner because I thought he was mean. So <laughs> I think that's why I became a Mets fan instead of a Yankee fan. Might have been that that was what dad watched. I don't know, but I prefer the George Steinbrenner story. <laughs> and so I just always watched, always liked. And then I always liked history and discovered that the two of those um, work well together. And so that's never played, though. Everybody always asks that question. I'm not somebody who... I played softball just for fun, never for anything. I just like to read and research it instead. Any any sports whatsoever? Uh, you said no baseball, no softball, but any other sports? I ran cross country and track all the way through college. All right. Yeah, this, you know, it's always interesting. It seems like most uh, sports historians do play a sport, if not the sport they study. Um, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> so, which makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, the reason why we have you on the, uh, the podcast today is, you know, to help us learn more about uh, the role that women had in uh, professional baseball. And also, of course, we'll get into specifically Negro League baseball in a moment. Uh, but 
as kind of like an overview, could you let us know just, I guess, historically speaking, of what has been the role of women in professional baseball? Just in baseball in general, contrary to what most people think, it's not new. It's not something that women are getting into for the first time or being a women have participated in baseball since baseball started in almost every role that you can think of, um, including on the professional level, though obviously that is a much smaller part of uh, the women's game simply because that has been a much harder, uh, a harder sell as any women's sport is. So it's not totally unique to baseball, um, but women have participated since the mid 19th century, all the way up to the present day um, as players, as umpires, as coaches, as writers, pretty much anywhere you look, you will find women having participated in the game of baseball and in certain time periods, much more so than other time periods, but that's more a reflection of American history uh, more than anything else and sort of the the gender issues that have always been there. Again, before we kind of get the specific, I guess, uh, perhaps the unique qualities that may have been found in Negro League Baseball, just uh, let's kind of start with the non-playing role that women had. So you mentioned uh, maybe women as, uh, you know, spectators or helping to operate a baseball club, uh, that, that kind of non-playing role uh, that women had in, in baseball. Sure. Um, again, thinking about women in a non-playing role, you're mostly talking about women who have either, well, certainly as fans, they've, they've always been there. And it's interesting that during the 19th century, we saw the introduction of ladies' days, um, which sort of continue in a weird way today. Uh, I've always thought they're weird, I guess. But the ladies, the ladies' days in the 19th century were all about improving the atmosphere of the game. It was a, They were based on the assumption that if women were in the ballpark, the men would behave better. And so we should encourage them to come. <laughs> And so that was that was sort of the original idea behind all of that, which I always find rather interesting. Was um, it any? Was it any successful? Well, <laughs> it does not, does not appear to have been so because the the gambling and and the drinking and all of those kinds of things do not seem to have improved. Regardless, okay, that um, was my suspicion. Yeah, <laughs> and so it that was. I think just more of a marketing ploy uh, more than anything. And I don't think it worked necessarily because, well, there's a whole variety of reasons it probably didn't work. Um, and so women as fans, you know, have always been there. Um, women in the writing role, writing about baseball. Also, again, since the 19th century, we've seen women um, at varying points, not huge numbers, but ha having that opportunity. Um, but I think where the biggest off the field role you see is actually women as owners. Um, from the early 20th, when we think professional uh, baseball in particular, from the early 20th century um, up to more recent history, um, owning major league teams, minor league teams. Um, and then in addition, of course, obviously over time, owning women's baseball teams as well. But on the professional side, um, the earliest female owner we have is Helene Hathaway uh, Robeson Britton, who owned the St. Louis Cardinals in the 19 teens. And so uh, she is the earliest female owner that we have of a professional baseball team. Yeah, so listeners, like I, I have to admit that I told uh, Leslie this before we started recording that I am woefully ignorant about women in baseball. So I'm glad I'm, we're doing this podcast as I'm learning a lot as we go along here. Uh, and also I'm a, I'm a huge basketball fan and to my knowledge, there has never been a uh, woman 
who has owned a professional NBA, uh, an NBA team. Um, not, not by herself. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Now it's like majority owner, um, except for I uh, forget the woman with the Utah Jazz, but she recently sold the team. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you're talking about a century ago. Uh, you have a woman. Yeah, 1911. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of just, uh, again, it's like obviously an overview, but that's just kind of some so a look at the non-playing role. Uh, what about women as players in a uh, professional sure. baseball? Well, women as players, um, again, defining it as professional is, is mm-hmm. tough. But women as players, we can date back to the 1860s. And where most people usually start is women playing college baseball because that's pretty – and so a team called the Vassa Resolutes – playing in the 1860s is usually where most people sort of start their their look. And you see the Vassar Resolutes, uh, Smith College, variety of women's colleges playing in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We then add to that um, a variety of types of women playing, um, typically called bloomer teams in the 19th century, obviously for their attire. (laughs) Um, And those bloomer teams were of varying quality. Many of them were, in the 19th century, the best term to use would have been vaudevillian in there. So they were more for entertainment and than serious play. Um, but that doesn't mean all of them were. And so sometimes you read and people will sort of dismiss all of that as just pure entertainment, pure fun. They weren't, any, they weren't, and that's just not true. And then there are a few individual players that come along starting in the very late 19th century, early 20th century. You have um, well, mind the name of Lizzie Arlington, Lizzie Murphy, Alta Weiss, variety of um, players. By the time you move into the early 1900s, you add to this the, the growth of the bloomer teams. Um, and the bloomer teams will play into the 1930s. And there's a pretty significant number of them in the teens, 20s, and 30s. The vast majority of them playing other women's teams, but you do read them playing men's teams as well, though that's not as common. Um, and that's kind of the, until you hit the 1940s. And this is, if anybody knows anything about women's baseball, the 1940s is the only time period they know, because that's the, from a movie, A League of Their Own. Mm-hmm. the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League from 43 to 54. And then it pretty much disappears until the 1970s again. And then women's baseball returns in the 70s, 90s, and the present. Okay. And now I guess this is where we make our turn toward uh, whether kind of the history you set up thus far uh, were Black women allowed to participate uh, or get involved on the same level as um uh, as women generally, was this like a what white women did or were black women also allowed to do these same things? Well, it's an interesting thing. And, and the answer is yes, they were, um, though harder to find. Not so, and I don't think that'll surprise anybody. Women athletes, particularly going back into the 19th century, finding information about women athletes just in general was difficult. Um, name changes, all of those. Mm-hmm. They t- typically tended to refer to women in the newspapers as Miss Lizzie and Miss Susie rather yeah. than their full names. <laughs> so, um, but we do know, and and you don't have college women's baseball for uh, black women in the 19th century, certainly. But we do have um, a number, we do have some records and the most famous team we know about are the Dolly Vardens who played in 1883 in Philadelphia. And there were actually two colored Dolly Varden teams. And then there was a third team playing in the Philadelphia area called the Captain Jinx. And so it appears that the three, those three teams um, played one another and occasionally played another local just pickup game kinds of games in the early 1880s. We then, 
as you move through the latter part of the 19th century, it, there's not a lot of information about um, black women's baseball teams. You move into the early 20th century, and just like on the white side of things, you do see an increase. Um, there are way more individual black women's teams playing than most people are aware of. I've probably identified mm, between the 19 teens and the 19, the early 1940s, maybe 40 or so um, black women's baseball teams. Um, barnstorming exhibition, that kind of thing. Nothing, um, nothing more than that. Certainly, probably the most significant of that group, where we have the most information early on, is a team called the St. Louis Black Broncos, playing in the uh, early 19 teens in and around uh, the St. Louis area, playing both women's teams but mostly men's teams, um, since there just simply weren't other opportunities. And so that's kind of what you see is teams popping up um, here and there across the country. Um, there was a somewhat organized league out in California in the 1930s that had four uh, black women's baseball teams um, playing one another for a season or two in the mid-1930s. Um, and so that's really what you see until, again, you hit the 1940s and then into the 1950s for black women's baseball because that's when you see the specific connection to the Negro Leagues um, and the three women that most people, if they know, are um, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, and Mamie Johnson, who played in the 1950s in the Negro Leagues. Actually, I'm curious about this. Could you explain more about, uh, I guess, why Black women's baseball, I guess, had that, I don't know if explosion is the right word, uh, in, in the 1950s, but had that, that, I guess, that rise in the 1950s. Sure. So, Tony Stone is the first of the three women and um, had a long pedigree of playing baseball out in um, the uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. That's where she was from. Um, and then she played um, baseball in San Francisco and then down in New Orleans before ending up in the Negro Leagues. And she's followed by um, Connie Morgan and Mamie Peanut Johnson. And the three of them play in the 1950s. And the question is always asked, you know, were they really good ball players? Or is it just that it was all about publicity? Well, it's a little bit of both. So the primary reason, to, I think, to answer your question is Robinson, Jackie Robinson, of course, integrates, reintegrates the major leagues in 1947. You start to see other ballplayers follow. Obviously, that has an impact on the Negro League teams. And so by the mid-1950s, the idea that Kansas City Monarchs and the Indianapolis ABCs, the two teams they played for, looking to raise their profile to use it as publicity. And so to some degree, that's why they're there. Uh, there's no doubt. But we also know that they all were solid ball players before, during, and certainly after. Connie Morgan, for example, was also not only an excellent uh, baseball player, but she was also a well-known basketball player um, in the Philadelphia area before she entered the Negro Leagues playing uh, baseball. And so she played for the Philadelphia Honey Drippers and a number of other teams in the Philadelphia area. Uh, so we got a good grasp, I think, on, um, or at least as good enough as we can get in, uh, in the amount of time uh, on the playing aspect with black women. But also, can you talk a little bit more about the, I guess the other side of, you know, the, maybe the, the man, I guess, managerial executive ownership um, aspects that uh, black women sure. have played yep. uh, in baseball? 
Sure. Well, you always start that story with Effa Manley, and she's she's a podcast all on her own because, as most people may or may not know, she is the only woman currently, I like to say, um, elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame um, as the owner of the Newark Eagles. And so she owned the Newark Eagles with her husband, Abe, and then on, from the mid-1930s through the 1940s, serving not only as role as owner, but also clearly serving a unofficial role um, with the league because her signature is on all kinds of documents and things like that. Um, so we know she was an incredibly active and involved owner, which um, in and of itself is very unusual. Um, so that's usually where the story starts. And for a lot of people, that's where the story ends. But in actuality, and particularly when you think about the announcement that Major League Baseball made, right? that's the interest that people have. So we can add to that list Olivia Taylor. Olivia Taylor was the owner of the Indianapolis ABCs in the 1920s. So she precedes Effa Manley by a decade and a half. She takes over after her husband CI dies in 1922 and is the owner from 1922 to 1924. And again, not just an owner in name, she clearly was involved in some of because her name appears at meetings, things like that. Um, and so, she, and in addition to that, we know that Olivia was also very much and in, heavily involved in the local NAACP in Indianapolis. And so she has a pretty big role in the community as well. And so that's really where the story starts um, when you think about um, significant uh, female ownership is actually with Olivia Taylor. You can then look beyond Olivia and Effa to others who had maybe not such significant roles, but just as an example, um, Henry Ann Green, took over the Baltimore Elite Giants in the early 1950s after her husband died. Dr. Hilda Bolden Shorter, yes, Dr. Hilda Bolden Shorter, uh, took over her fa father's team, the Philadelphia Stars. Um, she was a renowned pianist and pediatrician in addition to owning a baseball team for a short time at the, again, right at the end of the 1940s and moving into the 1950s. During the earlier periods, we have a number of women who were involved at various levels with um, either independent black teams or minor league black teams. Uh, Clara Jones was listed as the president of the Boston ABCs in the 1930s. Um, the New Orleans Creoles, who Tony Stone um, played for early on, also had two other female ball players playing for them in the, the mid-1940s. Fabiola Wilson and Gloria Diamond, both college students who played uh, between 1945 and 1948, which would have meant, if you think about, again, the New Orleans Creoles playing in the Negro Southern League, they must have played against some of the major Negro League teams. Finding that information is a little hard, but that, that's the kind of thing we're still looking for. Um, but they're there and they were playing. And um, Alan Page, who owned the New Orleans Creoles, seems to have had more women involved because he had three players, a coach, and a secretary that all were very involved in the 1940s um, with the uh, New Orleans Creoles. So those are just a few examples. And there are others, um, Ethel Posey, Composey's wife inherited the team for a short time. She clearly, at least as far as we know, never took any active role, but she still owned the team. <laughs> so what stuck out to me uh, as you're just describing uh, these various women, particularly those who are, you know, would, would own the team. It was often after a husband or uh, yes. or a father had died. Uh, so first off, that that just stuck with me. 
It's the not, 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 not gonna, I don't know what to go with it. Go with that, but uh, well, it's, it's the like, tip, oh. it's the typical scenario. In fact, yeah. it's very rare to find. So, if you look at women ownership just in general of baseball teams across its entire history, that's it's. And so, um, Joan Payson, who owned the New York Mets, mm-hmm. is almost completely unique in the fact that she actually bought the team herself, her own money, her own. She didn't inherit it. She didn't. That's really unusual <laughs> yeah and actually that okay now i know where i want to go with this it leads me to the the um the research aspect because okay because uh, you've already mentioned as well how it's difficult to trace and track um the involvement of women in general but also you know black women in particular uh with baseball history how have you uh during your research or other people you know who do this research uh, how have you all been able to piece this together when the record isn't going to say explicitly like, you know, this woman X was doing this activity Y right there in your face. How do you like how are you able to piece it together going through the archives and newspapers? It's been it's an interest archive. Newspapers are, are, again, just like they are general for the Negro Leagues, the primary source. I mean, they just are unfortunate, fortunately and unfortunately they are. Um, and so a lot of it done that way, just happenstance. Sometimes you're reading an article and they'll, oh, by the way, just like mention, ooh, Pearl Barnett, Isabel Baxter. These were women who played in the 19 teens and then in the 1930s and their name just pops up. And then sometimes you never see it again. And you're like, okay, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> Did they actually? Then we get lucky occasionally. And so, for example, uh, Minnie Forbes, who owned the Detroit Stars in the 1950s, she's still alive. And so we've been able to talk to Minnie about her involvement. Um, and 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 so that's, that's a rare opportunity. Sometimes it has come up, for example, um, Jim Overmeyer, another Negro researcher, was doing an interview with Rufus Sunnyman Jackson. And in the discussion, he happened to mention, and it wasn't a prime part, that his wife was involved and his wife did this for it. And we're like, ooh, cool, tell us more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ethel Manley, thankfully, because of who she was, left a huge set of archives. And those have all been donated. And so that's why, you know, the opportunity to know a great deal more about Ethel because of her role. Same thing with um, Olivia Taylor, being able to track her, not so much on the baseball side, sometimes, but through the NAACP and figure out and sort of put together her larger story. In her case, we also know that she and um, CI's brother, Ben, did not get along at all, and he didn't think she should have any. And so that is what actually appears in the newspapers, is Mm. the disputes and the fact that he thought he should have been the primary owner and not her. Those are the kinds of things that sometimes appear in the newspapers. Um, but unfortunately, that still is the the primary resource that we have. Yeah, I'll say, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know, I mean, you do know what you just explained it uh, via, the va- via the baseball angle. Uh, but I guess for listeners as well, uh, it's good for y'all to know that uh, oftentimes we look at uh, historical organizations, government activities and everything like that. Uh, you know, the, the men are the ones that get the the, rep, the recognition in public, but it's often women in the background doing the work, uh, you know, organizing or setting up the actual event. Yep. Uh, but what happens during the event, you know, is led by the men, but all the background work, maybe it should even be called background work, but the background <laughs> work is done by women uh, that sets it up, which, you know, doesn't get reported on afterwards in the papers and such. So exactly. Or, or is it? Or the interview you were mentioning, but a guy just mentions offhandedly, oh, yeah, my wife was doing this. It's like he doesn't even think about it concretely in that, in that fashion. So the book on Composey, and that mm-hmm. was where he was working on it, 
come talks about his wife, Ethel, and he just says, and the, some of the players in their interviews acknowledged that her role was to keep him calm, to be his sounding board, et cetera. And it's like, well, that's important. Don't make it sound like an afterthought. It, it, it's to your, but that's how it off, it'll off. And you're like, Ooh, tell us more. And they're like, what do you want to know? That's all she did. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, no, there's gotta be more to it than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what does keep him calm mean? Like, what did she actually do? <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, what does that mean that she was a sounding board? Like, did yeah. he bring home? Did she, but that's, and that's, so we get those little tidbits sometimes you're like, okay, that clearly means she was involved. She knew, but unfortunately that's as much as we can say. One thing I do want to ask, um, before I get to my final question, uh, I, this one just popped in my head. Uh, what what were the, or was there any attempt to, uh, or maybe they did, uh, did white and black women play each other uh, in baseball games? Or was there an attempt to um, have an integration similar, um, I guess maybe not similar, but akin to uh, what happened with the men's leagues? No, doesn't appear to be so. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't certainly occasions where that might have happened, where a white team and a black, but it wasn't a, a purposeful effort. It wasn't an organized effort. And we know that the one time that there would have been an opportunity for that to happen, of course, was in the All-American League. And based on everything we know, interviews that have been done with women that were involved, um, no black women were invited and they were not Mm. permitted. And so um, that would have been the only place where we would have seen that happen. uh, And that would have been the opportunity. And it did not happen. All right. Yeah, that, that was my suspicion. Uh, but again, I came to this with a dearth of knowledge, so I don't want to be out here uh, <laughs> acting like I know things. Uh, but I have learned quite a bit. Uh, and again, this is just a, an overview. I'm just like, I, I've read your um, your CV and you've written a lot. And other historians and writers have done a lot on this. I guess that's the final question here to wrap things up. In your opinion, why is it important for the average person, be they a baseball fan or not, uh, to understand and know about this history of uh, white women and black women uh, in, in professional baseball, or even just baseball in general, not not just professional. Well, I think it's I think it's first and, first and foremost important, just simply from the standpoint of what we were talking about a few minutes ago, right? The lack of recognition and the idea that today people think that this is an entirely new, and it's like no, it's not. There's a huge history here that gives people a chance to know that this is not completely unique. Somebody's done it before me. I mean, I hate to use the cliche, but if you can see it, you can be it. And if you can't see it, you don't know that you can do this. And so it leaves the assumption that once again, women have been left out of, and that's just not true. And so I think to correct that that story and to show people the larger picture, because it is a large, it, and it does change the way you understand things then to realize both where the opportunities were and where the opportunities weren't. So you just asked, you know, about the integration question. So there's an opportunity that wasn't. And so then that leads to people asking bigger questions, which is why? Why did that not happen? Why were women allowed to play in the 1980s and 1890s? And then they disappear and then they come back. What was going on? And so you can use the baseball story, so to speak, to learn more about American history in general, without even realizing that's what you're doing. And I think sometimes that's a great way to think about it as well. But I just think it's it's just so important to each new generation to know about those who came before them and that what did and did not happen to allow them to understand why things are the way they are. Well said. Uh, I think I take a similar ethos uh, when I try to do my historical research. Uh, but 
Uh, well agreed, especially the question of why. Why did this happen? And then, you know, if something didn't happen, why did it not happen? Uh, right. Both are equally important uh, questions and uh, pr- provide interesting answers. Well, because if you don't, the why question is always important, right? It's like, otherwise, everybody thinks this things just, they don't just happen. There's a reason. And if we can figure out what the reason is, then maybe we can change it in whatever way we need to, or not, depending on what it is. So uh, thank you, Professor Hefe, uh, for, again, we know this has only been about half an hour. That is not enough time, but that's always the problem with history. There's never enough time to get into it and get all the details. Uh, but I do appreciate you uh, giving us a fair amount of, to work with. Um, and uh, I ho- hope listeners enjoyed it. I know I did. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity and 30 minutes. Hey, it's better than it's better than zero, right? It's a, it's a start. And the goal is to get people interested so they go out and do their own research. Once again, I'd like to express my thanks for Professor Hefe uh, for really educating uh Particularly me, because like as I say in the podcast, I, I I just did not know a lot about women women's baseball, which is my fault. I should do more reading on it. Uh, but I'm glad to have been able to start that education. So I thank her very much for joining us on the Negro Leagues, our Major Leagues podcast. And I hope you all learned a lot. And we'll see you back here for the next episode.